0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hi everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. It's James taking you through this week's show, and the guest this week is Mark Butcher, the former Surrey and England batsman and current musician. He's about to release his second album. It's called Now Playing. And it'll be released across all formats on the 5th of July. And you'll also get a sneak peek in this podcast of his new single, Country, which is going to be released across digital platforms on the 28th of June. Mark Butcher, he takes on the Cricket Badger. 20 questions. Hi, my name is Brian Laura, and you're listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. Cricket Badger podcast fact file. Mark Butcher, Surrey and England left-handed batsman. 71 tests for England. Highest first class score 259. Highest test match score 173 not out. Commentator and documentary maker. A musician and singer who is bringing out his second album called Now Playing. Welcome to the podcast. Let's have a badger chat.
1: Mark Butcher, how are you? (laughs) <laughs> very well, thanks. Not bad at all. is treating you okay, is it? I've, you're yeah. a busy man. Obviously cricket's wall-to-wall at the moment, isn't it, this summer, so it's a, a chance to uh, enjoy cricket taking centre stage?
2: Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah, is. I've got I'm having part of the house knocked down as well at the moment, so everything's slightly chaotic, but yeah, all is good. And uh, you know, the weather plays ball. The, the cricket that has been played so far has been been very, very good in the uh yeah in the World Cup. So fingers crossed more to come.
1: And the one thing we've never been able to actually achieve in England is actually getting the weather to abide by the rules as well, as it? So uh, hopefully that will change as you say. Only
2: well, when you don't need it. I said we could have played it, played the World Cup in February it would have been fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was looking at, looking back at last year's June and last year's June with the football World Cup was absolutely uh, a stonking summer, wasn't it? It was wall to wall sunshine.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't see a ball kicked to that until probably until the semi final. I was driving around doing blast games and things like that and it was it was Utterly scorching. So, um, yeah, well, sod's law. The the man
1: upstairs has got it in for cricket, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to take on the Cricket Badget Podcast 20 questions this week, and we'll start with number one, which is always the best place to start. If not a cricketer, Mark Butcher, what would you have done with your life? Oh, man, well, but something that
2: didn't involve doing a proper day's work, I guess. So um, a musician would have have worked out quite well, I think, under those circumstances. Um, It never occurred to me that I wouldn't. End up being a cricketer, which wasn't being arrogant. It was just a, I kind of it never entered my thick skull as a kid that there was there was <laughs> there was the chance that it might go wrong and I wouldn't. So maybe that uh, that played in my favour in the end.
1: Well, I always try and plug my book at some stage during the month of uh, doing the cricket budget podcast, and uh, you're a good man to do it with because you were kind enough to uh, give me a, an hour of your time a couple of years ago talk about you and your father and your family in, in cricket following on in the footsteps of cricketing fathers by the way if you haven't actually bought it already so it's, it's still there available on amazon um, and <laughs> one of the things that came up from talking to a lot of people you know across cricket about having fathers that had already played the game was that you're exposed to it early the bats and balls are lying around the house you, you take into to games really early in your life and you're playing with friends and family on the edges of professional pitches so Cricket was right on the agenda from a very early age, wasn't it, with you? Yeah, I was just in my blood. I'd, it's
2: not a memory without cricket, really. In in terms of my very very young years, you know, mum tells me that I was, you know, still in still in the cot, still being fed. Uh, the first time I was at the Oval, so I mean, it's not exactly the most sort of pastoral of places to to be spending your summers, but that's that's where I was. And yeah, I mean, it's, the game has just always been a part of my life. And as a consequence, I suppose the biggest influence on my career would be would have to be my dad because um, if I was not his son, then perhaps I would have been somewhere else.
1: That's question number two. So you've answered that already, but it's not just your dad, though, is it? I mean, your brother went into the game. Your uncle played. It's a, there's a whole load of butchers out there that I picked up a bat and, and done well with it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I guess that that sort of goes back to my it would be my my grandmother on my dad's side who was just unbelievably keen on on all sport really and really encouraged her sons to, to be involved and you know she coached herself she coached sort of club teams and things like that around around the croydon area in her younger days and so yeah the, the, the family my, my dad my granddad who was offered a contract i think with crystal palace back in the, in the very early days and decided to to go into his own business instead such was the uh, the paltry remuneration for professional football back in those days so yeah we were a pretty sporting
1: bunch on, on that side since you remember you telling me that your granddad was quite competitive a lot of parents will try and give their sons or daughters a bit of an easy win to encourage them but that wasn't your experience in the back garden from what i remember <laughs> no 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 um and
2: quite right too yeah i'd do the same <laughs> i'd do <laughs> the same with my sons We're right to have any but I, you know that that was the same on the on my mum's side too i mean mum was a uh, was an athlete and a, was an international gymnast representing great britain in the sort of the late 60s,
1: 70s, so you know it, it was on. It was definitely
2: on both sides of the bloodline.
1: What's been your best moment in cricket? If I could take you back to a day in your career and you could relive it again, which one would you choose? Oh, I guess it'd have to be heading me, I guess um, I think there were other special points in my
2: career. I mean, sort of going back through to sort of remember making my first ever first-class hundred at, at Northans Road, the old ground at Hampshire, um, back in 94. I can remember winning a, a Sunday League title in 96. Which was uh, it had been a long time since uh, since trophies I think 82 had been the, the previous one we won Nat West Trophy where I was in the crowd watching my dad um, steer us home against Warwickshire so that was a that was a, a great moment um winning the championship for the first time in goodness knows how long for, for Surrey in '99 with a bunch of guys many of whom I'd sort of played schoolboy cricket with or kind of come up through the ranks with was a, was another great moment but but heading me in 2001 in the ashes was the, was the moment I guess because it Everything that came afterwards was, was down to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd have that day. I'd have that day again. If I could have had that day a few more times, you know, in terms of being able to being able to um, pretty much do whatever I wanted to do on the field and, 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 and it worked, <laughs> then, yeah. uh,
1: then, well, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be on a yacht somewhere.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember talking to your dad about that as well, and you and your dad spent quite a bit of time, because you, you'd struggled, hadn't you? You'd had your struggles in the... In the few months or, or whatever coming up to that uh, test series and you've yeah, gone, well, gone back to basics with your dad haven't you
2: yeah i'd, I'd had about a year of, of struggles really long, probably longer than that and was seriously considering quitting the game so yeah i, I, I sort of called i called the old man up sort of, around about new year 2001 and said look I'm, i can't I could do it with some help here any chance and and what's more, treat me as though I've never played the game before, you know, sort of go go right back to the beginning. So we had two and a half, three months of one to one stuff that we'd never done before in in, in my life, you know, it was not, because he was playing, um, and then subsequently coaching. It wasn't as though we had enormous amount of contact around my game at any point in my life. So that was kind of like the the, the most time we'd ever spent together on that front, um, and it was fantastic, you know. If, if I'd never if I never got back into the England side, I would that still would have been. One of the best times um, because what he gave me in terms of um, technique and kind of getting out of my own way as far as batting was concerned meant, meant I enjoyed it again
1: and that it was fun which is what sport should always be, whether you make a living from it or not. I spoke to your dad as well for the book, and it was, it was a period of his life as well, which he remembered really fondly too, for the similar reasons that you just said, that you'd, you'd not really had those cricketing experiences together, and a chance to the father and son to kind of bond in a net was quite a special time for him as well.
2: Oh, right, yeah. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, but it was. It, it was like that. And as I said, if, it, if I hadn't have been fortunate that three or four, maybe even five other players who would have been ahead of me in the pecking order for that Ashes series that summer hadn't all got injured then you know it things may not have turned out the way that they did but we still would have had that time you know and who knows that it might have happened later on that I might never have got back in the England side who knows but at least I would have I would I I guarantee you I'd have scored a a lot of runs for Surrey in that time if I hadn't been back for
1: England because you've had the bad times does it make you appreciate those days in the sunshine even more
2: um yeah i guess so i mean but it's kind of i would say that would be the, that's the story of everybody's life and whatever thing whatever they do you know yeah. nobody nobody ever has it easy all the way through it's not plain sailing doing anything so so yeah a bit of perspective is always is always a good thing
1: what was your worst moment in cricket
2: worst moment that's a good question i mean i don't know it's kind of maybe i've wiped the real bad ones from my mind because in the end it's kind of it's only, it's only a game <laughs> I suppose the things that spring to mind the most was losing games, particularly at the back end of my career when I was captain at Surrey. Um, and I, I kind of, I took the losses quite personally, quite badly, I think. But that's, I mean, that's the only thing that springs to mind. I mean, how what, what could be so bad? You, uh, yeah. Even if you weren't scoring any runs and things were, things were bad, you were playing cricket for a living, or we were touring some of the best places in the
1: world and, I can't think of anything particularly that I would describe as the worst. When you were young and you were getting into cricket, as you say, it was right on your doorstep, right, for, right from the start. Who was your cricket hero? Who was the poster on the wall? I, I think it,
2: there would have been two of them, really. Richards Holding. I yeah. think the, the West Indies were the, you know, they they were the kings back in in the, the time of my growing up, and so you know, you kind of latched onto them. And I I, I, think, I guess later, you know beefy an and 81, sort of captured everybody's imagination, but that didn't feel quite so personal. And then perhaps Gower after that because he was left-handed and everybody wanted to bat like Gower, right? So, um,
1: Yeah. Which is not a pinpoint answer for you, but it gives you a clue. If you could trade lives with any current player and just for a day live in their skin and see what it's like to be them and enjoy their skills, who would you pick?
2: I'd, I'd like a day in the life of Virat Kohli, I think,
1: to... Um, less
2: for his batting ability or whatever, but just to see what that's like to kind of be one of the most famous individuals in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it must be quite extraordinary to sort of live the way that he lives and still be able to sort of go out and on pretty much a daily basis um, deliver to a degree that very few people have, have been
1: able to do, so be an interesting 24 hours. I wrote a piece about Virat Kohli the other day, and in his honeymoon, I mean, obviously, marrying one of the most beautiful Bollywood actresses in the world isn't a bad thing, but the you know, to have to choose <laughs> yeah, your... I, I um, figure that one in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to have to choose your honeymoon destination, because there might not be there very many Bollywood fans and very many cricket fans there, choosing Finland because you're going to be out of the way and be able to be normal for a couple, <laughs> for a week or so. Yeah, people don't usually factor that into their lives, do they? No,
2: exactly. So it w- it would be quite something, I reckon. You might have to it might have to be for longer than 24
1: hours, though, so you can get everything in. <laughs> if I was to put you in charge of world cricket for a day, what would you change? Is there a bugbear about cricket these days that you'd like to change the rules for?
2: Something that's just a, a, a complete bore is the, the wasting of time that goes on over contact with boundary lines and stuff like that. My very simple, straightforward thing would be that for for boundary fours the ball actually has to either hit the rope or cross it and you could have some sort of addendum in there where you know a fielder deliberately moving the rope in order to stop the ball whatever would would constitute a boundary but this whole thing about you know guys diving pulling off a you know preventing the ball from reaching the fence but having some part of their trousers touching the rope and therefore taking five minutes to work out whether it was a three
1: four or whatever um would disappear immediately yeah i quite like that some of the athleticism on the boundary edge as you say, is astronomically fantastic. And just because you've got half a sleeve touching the boundary rope when you, <laughs> yeah. you're in contact I mean, with the ball, it's a four, isn't it? I think, I think the law works perfectly well for, for catches. I mean, obviously that, you know,
2: if you're, if you're affecting a, a, a catch and you've made contact with a boundary rope, then the, ball go, the ball's a six or whatever. I don't have a problem with that. It's when the ball is dribbling along the ground. It's basically for fours. So it covers off the, the the boundary four option as opposed to the, the dismissal, or otherwise if the ball is going for six.
0: The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com, their ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger Podcast. I
1: wasn't... For you there, then, why uh, Mark Butch is on the podcast this week, or well, one of the reasons, obviously, his cricket for career is, is there as well. But you, you've been a busy man in the studio as well just recently, you're bringing out a new album, your single, which that was a snippet of. We'll hear more of that at the end of the podcast. Music is a big part of your life, isn't it?
2: Yeah, always um, oh, has been, actually. It kind of, I guess, it all started up for me again whilst I was playing um, when Ben Holyoke was tragically killed. I kind of, I wrote a A song that got that the family asked me to perform at his um, his memorial service at Southwark Cathedral. I was then asked if I would go and record it, and I kind of you know fell in with a bunch of musicians and and various things, and I started writing and stuff again. And you know, out of something as as dreadful as that accident, sort of came sort of resurrection of uh, my interest and my love of sort of writing and playing, performing, singing, all that kind of stuff. Um, So I I had a uh, my first album was out in 2010. Songs from the Sun House, and that uh, we we sold a few of those. And um, I got a new one coming out called Now Playing on the on the fifth of July.
1: I was looking yeah. on on Spotify to see what you'd done in the past, and as you said, the the first album out in twenty ten. The late years or two you, you're a bit of an Adele, really, aren't you? With the break between the albums. <laughs> I'm just as much of a diva as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, well, it's just one of those things. Some
2: of the songs on this record were, would have been written and sort of demoed. You know, two or three years after the last album um and others are, are, are much more up to date it's not as though i'm prolific when it comes to writing or anything like that but there's also the uh the, the small matter of getting all your ducks in a row to be able to, to 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 record it get all the promotion done get a record label to put it out all of those types of things and it also sort of took time whilst i was still charging around the world commentating and um you know, making cricket documentaries and goodness knows whatever else. So there's just a lot going on. And so and sometimes, you know, before you know it, 2016 becomes 2019. You're like, where did the last three years go? But, oh, hang on, we're ready to put the thing out now. So, you know, that's, that's all.
1: Obviously, you carried a cricket pack around with you for much of your younger life. How often was the guitar on the back as well? Was it was it a feature of your youth as well as, you know, the post-cricket yeah. career?
2: Yeah, it was. I, I, I got my, um, I think... I must have persuaded Mum to, to buy me a knockoff Telecaster or something when I was about twelve or thirteen. I'd always sort of sung and performed and done things like that in, in school up until that point, but the guitar came slightly later, I guess. Um, and I, you know, I'd sit in front of the sit in front of the TV playing old VHSs of um, of and concerts and things like that, and just teach myself how to play off like, by copying off the telly. Uh, so uh, yeah, so when I started playing, I think my first tour. To be in West Indies 97, 98, famous Sabina Park <laughs> cancelled Test match, and I remembered I took a, I had a, I bought a, a, a Les Paul, um, Les Paul studio that I took on the on that trip with me, and I pretty much took a guitar with me whenever we went away from that point on, and it wasn't it wasn't a question. I didn't take it so that I'd be sort of like sitting there on the back of the bus or or you know, down in the hotel bar, sort of annoying everybody with it all the time. It was just I sat with it in my room, and I'd, I'd play, and I'd write, and I'd learn songs. Um, it was it was entirely for my own amusement, really. I had uh, Craig White on the
1: podcast two or three weeks ago, and he's, yeah. he's a big one now for bringing his guitar out and, and playing tunes. And Joe Root, I've seen, um, yeah. has got his little kind of banjo thing that he, he likes to play as well. There's, there's a few of you on the cricket circuit that like to pick up a guitar. Is there a, a super group there in the making? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, I spoke to Joe, actually. He was sort of like
2: he was asking me about you know, about learning and sort of teaching yourself and the best way to go about it. I think Dale Stane, I think I think Joe's got one of those little um, Ed Sheeran Martins, you know, and I think Dale Stane's got one as well because he, he plonked it in my hands at a, at a baggage carousel in, in the West Indies somewhere <laughs> I was covering the, the CPL and I sort of took it out and played it. You know, really cool. So yeah, lots lots of the guys do it, and I, I can completely understand it because you know all of that time on the road, all of that time in hotel rooms, you kind of you do have the, the opportunity to kind of sit there and, and, and immerse yourself in something else, you know. And it's good; it's a lovely diversion.
1: But you also have the time to kind of to, to teach yourself, you know, and it keeps you out of trouble. In in, in my haste to get into the music, I forgot to actually ask you the question, which was, and um, they say all rock stars want to be sportsmen and vice versa. Um, if you could be famous in another field, what you would, would you have chosen? I've just taken for granted that rock, being a rock star, or a musician, or whatever, would have been your answer <laughs> to that. I,
2: I, I yeah, guess that yeah. is the I, state, I guess so. I mean, it's not not imaginative now, is it? But um, but yeah, for sure. I mean, the the thing is that, that I've I've done a bit of touring um, as a as a musician, you know, in, in bands around Europe and things like that. And um, the similarities in the life are quite are quite stark, really, um, in terms of this sort of like hanging about and you spend most of your time not doing the thing that you're there for, you know, unless you were Michael Vaughan in 2002-03 where he spent nearly all of that tour in the ashes batting. But most most of the time you kind of like, the downtime far outweighs the time that you're up there on stage doing your thing. And so, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll aside, they're they're very similar. Although in some
1: points they were very much the same in that too. (laughs) You can go down that route if you want. <laughs> <laughs> the album's called Now Playing, as you've, as you've mentioned. That's going to be released It's on the 5th of July. And you've got a single out, which we heard a snippet of a, a few minutes ago, called yeah. Country, which I've been listening to this morning. And it's actually, I, I really like it. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast. I, I've kind of played it a few times and I do really like it. I, I really like music and I, I like to think I've got quite a wide range of musical tastes. I'd put you in the soul bluesy kind of area, but I don't like pigeonholing people because that kind of, uh-huh. t- you tend to, I think you, you tend to find with music that if you, if you think of yourself as an indie fan, you disregard a whole load of stuff out there that's really good. So I, I prefer to kind of not pigeonhole, but your song country, um, which I've been yeah. listening to it's kind of got a bit of a message behind it. If I like listening to lyrics. I guess that's the writer in me coming out, but I like listening to lyrics and kind of trying to understand what a song's about. And yeah. there's a lot of, Kind of references to black oppression and slavery and stuff at the start of it, and you're then going into kind of like you're a black guy, but this is your country. Is that, is that have I interpreted it right?
2: Yeah, I mean the
1: the, the premise of it,
2: it started off. I I, I was reading some stuff and, and was kind of frankly absolutely shocked at the sort the, the numbers. I mean, obviously everybody knows about history of slavery and people being taken from from east and central africa and whatever and then taken west and the the horrors of all of that but what i hadn't realized was that there was the the, the numbers were quite as incredible um you know 30 million was a number that i'd sort of like that bounced around in my head and i was just trying to get my head around that sort of that number so it started off being you know as a, as a reflection on that but then it, it kind of it took on a, a slightly different life whereby i was thinking about the idea of, of people who had been taken through through no choice of their own to one side of the world and then quite in in a lot of cases had ended up coming back either to europe or to the uk and whatever but having families there and settling there and all that kind of stuff and yet you'd still get the question from people you know they say so where are you from and you'd say oh you know camberwell or something and they go no no where are you really from that that sort of question that was and so the, the, the payoff or the chorus or whatever of the the, the tune is kind of that. It's kind of how long, do, how long do people have to have been born and where, where they consider they were born and raised and where their families are from and all that kind of stuff before, people was, before that question stops coming up. And then, the, the, I mean, the, the, the most extraordinary thing about the lyric is that there was no, when I wrote it, there was, there was no Brexit. There had been no Windrush scandal, none of those things were a thing they hadn't been invented yet the, the lyrics sounded as though it or, or may sound to people now as though it was written off the back of the Windrush scandal and Brexit and various other things but it wasn't I wrote it beforehand um, and those events kind of have, have kind of caught up with what I was talking about a little bit so yeah I mean that's 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 the story really um, and it, you know, I wasn't putting myself in, in the place of, well, no, I suppose I was, I suppose I am, I am. It's kind of, it's a kind of slightly personal, but it's mainly a, a wider idea about, you know, people wherever they come from, it's from the Caribbean, whether they were whether they were descendants of slaves, whether they were, you know, their families had moved from India or whatever it had been, you know, there's, that's that undercurrent of still being asked the question, you know, but where were you really yeah. from when actually you're born here and that's all you know.
1: That's how I interpreted it from the from the listeners I've had. And I, I guess, I mean, we're not trying to get the Cricket Magic podcast too political and, and, and talking about <laughs> racism and stuff like that. But, you know, with, with all of the stuff that's been kind of in, in the political land over the last two or three years, illegal immigrants, immigrants, whatever whatever people have been banging on about, yeah, there's a there's a hell of a lot of people with non-white skin living in, in England who are English and we don't probably refer to them as such, do we, at times?
2: I, I have never been more aware of my... Um, of my heritage or my skin tone than i have been in the last three years very fortunate in that where i where i grew up and where i went to school and all that kind of stuff i didn't encounter an enormous amount of sort of racism and things like that i think my mum and dad probably did because in the, the early 70s mixed race couples were not the norm but i but somehow i was insulated from that um, and, and I thank my mum for that a lot, and I also thank my dad. They kind of somehow managed to keep a lot of that from us. But I, but in the last yeah, in the last two or three years, I've I've kind of I've looked around on, on trains when I've got on and things like that, which I'd never done before. Um, so yeah, there's a and and now and I also understand where friends of mine, brown skin friends of mine, had kind of had, had been a little bit. Had been much more chippy about the idea of race and things than I ever was and I could never really understand it. I
1: now get it and I kind of apologise to all of them um, for not having seen it before you know just from from my sort of thing I'm, not, I'm probably one of the worst people to talk about issues of race because I'm a very much a white middle class person really and that's my background and I come from yeah. Lincolnshire originally where it is predominantly white and I grew up in a school which was predominantly white but one of my best yeah. friends to this day comes from India and he, he started at my school when I think we were both about 10 and I was cricket mad then and I'd only ever seen Indian people on the television playing cricket and my first question to him in the playground was do you like cricket and he said yeah. yes <laughs> and then we were friends from them on. And but that's that's one thing that cricket does to you, isn't it? That you know, in the in the world of cricket, where so many different cultures and things meet on the on the playing field, in the end, race goes out of the equation when you're a cricket fan, doesn't it?
2: Well, I, yeah, I hope so. And you know, wh- one of the great things about holding a, a World Cup in the UK, weather aside, is that because it we are, we are such a multicultural little island, you know, all the all the teams get to feel as though they are uh, they're playing a home game, you know. Mm. Um, we can get into the idea of whether there are enough teams in it or not but that that's that's another thing but you know when bangladesh should have their fans fill in the overlap or india pakistan manchester a couple of days ago or whatever um south africa australia all very very well represented around around london obviously it's kind of it does show you that the, the game is a is a is an unbelievable melting pot and that
1: by and large there's pretty pretty much goodwill around people from all over the place when it comes to the game of cricket one of the things I took out the India-Pakistan game wasn't necessarily the best game in the world, but you have got all the political shenanigans going on on the other side of the world. But there were Indian and Pakistan shirts and side by side, just enjoying the game, which I think is yeah, uh, yeah,
2: and that's cool. great. <laughs> and the, the other good, the other good thing about that is is that the, the players, as much as they are expected to kind of, you know, they'll have their their houses pelted or, you know, in some cases set on fire if the, if the result. Doesn't go particularly well, such as the, the, the slightly uh, fanatic support back in their in, in pockets of, of their homelands. The players always get on really well, and sometimes they have to pretend that they don't in order that they, <laughs> in order to satisfy the um, to satisfy the fervour. Sometimes, but yeah, it was great yesterday that the game went off without an incident, and that's exactly as it should be.
0: Following on in the footsteps of cricketing fathers by James Butler. Rated five stars on Amazon. Ever wondered what it was like to be the son of a famous father? Would you live in his shadow or find the skill and strength to create your own limelight? Following on explores the multi-generational nature of cricket and examines the father and son relationships in sport. How does the weight of expectation, advantage or pressure to succeed influence a young cricketer's progress as they follow in the footsteps of a successful father. Do cricketing sons have a head start in their genes? Is there a gene for elite cricket performance? Following on is based on exclusive interviews with Liam Botham, Alan Ian and Mark Butcher Nick Compton, Chris Graham and Fabian Cowdery, Simon Dennis, Brett D'Olivera Alan and Mark Elam, Dale Hadley, Dean Headley, Simon Jones, Jake Lehman David and Graham Lloyd, Martin Moxon, Arnie and Ryan Sidebottom, Alex Stewart, and Tim and Chris Tremlett. The issues are developed and discussed with the words of the players themselves and also sports psychologists and experts in genomics. James Butler takes us on a journey of discovery, asking the questions. And examining the responses while making comparisons with other sports and the world of entertainment and business. For any cricket lover, available on Amazon and in all good bookshops published by Great Northern Books. Following on in the footsteps of Cricketing Fathers...
1: Just back to the music before we move on to some of the other questions. Uh, yeah, Having been a cricketer, um, that question about rock stars want to be sportsmen and vice mm. versa, you've had the best of both, haven't you, really?
2: Yeah, I have. I have, and hopefully a bit more to come. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like I said, it's kind of figured out a way of not having to do a proper day's work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's always handy, It's always good. If you could meet anybody, living or dead, who would you like to meet? Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Easy. Yeah, I reckon he'll like cricket too. I I saw a documentary about him once, and there was an ex-girlfriend of his who he'd shared a a flat with in England, I think. she just pulled out a drawer, and she'd got loads of his lyrics, and his kind of handwritten lyrics and things in in the drawer, and you'd think, blimey, put those on eBay. They'd cost a fortune. (laughs) But, yeah, he he was um, ahead of his time in a way, wasn't he, Jimi Hendrix? Massively, yeah.
2: Yeah, and was kind of,
1: you know, I suppose that, the um, perception is that
2: it was all sort of mind-altering drugs and he was out, on, out of his box all the time and that's what allowed him to create the soundscapes that he did. But I, I think there was probably more to it that. It was just a curiosity, you know, uh, an openness to ideas and to cultures and things like that,
1: which makes him a pretty interesting dude, I reckon. Who would play you in Butch, the movie? If it there was a movie about your life, who would be the star? <laughs> well... That Omar Jalili
2: and I have kind of, you know, got a bit of a thing going. We're, we reckon we look like each other from certain angles,
1: so it'd have to be him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I'd put him on a diet for the for the early bit, but he's
1: all right now. <laughs> What's well, the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? Do you get do you get nervous before you go on stage with the guitar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, I think it was probably
2: the last time I was really nervous would have been I agreed to play a few tunes at Jade Durmback's opening testimonial event at the Oval, which I was tremendously nervous about because on these occasions, it's not really a gig and it's kind of, you know, you're stepping up on stage between courses or whatever of a dinner and it's apropos of nothing. And I was just kind of like, what the hell am I doing this for? <laughs> so I sat there playing a few tunes to people for no reason, but it was quite cool.
1: You've you done a few of those, haven't you? Some PCA dinners and all that kind of stuff. You've been the... Well, there yeah, I guess I guess you're right about something like that. If, if people buy tickets come and see you in concert, they come to support you and to see what you've got to do, but there'll be people at dinners and things who really couldn't care less, wouldn't they?
2: Yeah, yeah
1: exactly that, exactly that.
2: So those, those, those are the thoughts, positive thoughts that were bouncing around in my head before that one. <laughs> what is the top item
1: on your bucket list?
2: The thing you've got to do before you die. I don't know, I, I'd, I'd love to go and spend some time in, 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 in relative luxury uh in uh in somewhere like canada out in the out in the wilderness and sort of watch the seasons change somewhere like that because it just looks like the most incredible place so i've never i've never been you know you kind of you get a bit blase about traveling I, I suppose you kind of end up going all sorts of places and you work and whatever but yeah it's that's not particularly bucket listy that is it but that's the only thing that i can think of right now
1: are you a morning or a night person
2: I used to be a night person. I'm now a morning person.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that
2: changed. I don't know when that changed. Probably around about 30, 34, 35. The nights stopped being quite so friendly or, or you actually had to sleep in order to be able to function the next day. That weird thing that happens when you get a little bit older and so
1: therefore the, uh, the nights were not anywhere near as much fun. As I've got older, I've realised that hangovers can last two or three days. It's not as pleasant. Oh, comfortably. <laughs>
2: comfortably. <laughs> So I, I, you know, also I have a, you know, I, I quite like having the world to myself for a little while. So getting up early in the day before before the, before the, people have started to go about their business
1: is quite a nice thing. What celebrity annoys you the most?
2: <laughs> uh, that's an extraordinary question.
1: Some people say that there's nobody annoys them and they're very chilled and everything just kind of, you know, water off the duck's back and can turn them off the telly. And other people have somebody like, I don't know, Piers Morgan or... And Russell Brown do really great.
2: Yeah, well, P- P- I can't, I understand Piers, so he doesn't annoy me. It's like every, every once in a while I'm disappointed by him. <laughs> but generally speaking, I understand what he's up to anyway that, that's one of the worst you, things you can say
1: to me isn't it you, i'm very disappointed by you You can stand in the corner and think about what you've done Well, kind of...
2: oh yeah exactly that that's yeah. exactly. i've actually i've actually tweeted that once before um, and instead of getting some kind of you know uh some kind of uh fierce put down i think he sort of he, he explained himself which i kind of thought which i took as a as a victory as a <laughs> the fact that it had landed but we know each other you know um yeah we're not mates or anything like that but we know each other and um yeah so not him. I don't know i th- I think potentially I think going probably going back to what we were talking about before, I think Nigel Farage makes me want to
1: throw things, destroy things. I don't think he necessarily be black, white, green, or whatever to to think that I think he's an odious creature
2: yeah, there you go well, well he and he is a celebrity, isn't he because he's certainly not a politician well, <laughs> I suppose that I suppose they're one in the
1: same now, which is
2: yeah. more to the point
1: yeah. more more problems added, I suppose. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the fonts, how cool would you say you are? And, I mean, you've got, you've got to be cool, haven't you? You're, you're a guitarist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
2: I think, you know, perhaps I'm you know, sort of protesting too much. Um, maybe I'm not that cool, really, but I'm trying to do everything I can to make it look as I am. I'd give myself
1: a 6 out of 10. If you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go to? You can go forwards, backwards, wherever you want in you know in, in any country, in any element of history. Where would you want to have a look at? Um,
2: yeah, that's cool. Um, I don't know. I re- you know, London in the sixties must have been quite cool. But again, that could be just that could be just there was like two parts of the town that were really great and everywhere else was terrible. Um, which I, I'm I'm banking on that being fact. So maybe that's not a good place to go back to.
1: On stage with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that
2: might have been quite good. Which thought it was a shambles, apparently, though. Yeah. Unless you like mud. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> where should we go? No, I'm quite happy where I am, honestly. Okay. I don't think I would. The temptation always to kind of to either wish your time away um, to a point in the future or to um, to hanker after something that's never coming back is, is, a, is a bad thing. So try and make the best of the time that you've got right in
1: front of you. Uh, and that's the most difficult thing to do. So I'm, I'm standing still. Okay, I'll recall the time machine. It's coming back from Amazon aware which it's been delivered by. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? You know, in cricket, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to different countries to watch mm. cricket. You've travelled all over the place. David Gower gave me a, a really interest, interesting answer on that. He said, you know, now he's, you know, he's getting older and he's going to be in, coming to his retirement years he fancies going to a lot of European places and things that cricket never took him to. Would you, would you be down that route or would you go back to places that you've enjoyed in the sun and where you've seen cricket and played yeah, cricket? Yeah,
2: I, I, I quite like... I, I do quite like the idea of exploring the continent um, for exactly the same reason. It's just, you know, you've kind of seen... And i have done quite a bit of travelling sort of east as well. Although um, sort of China and Japan are kind of um, would be endlessly fascinating places. Although I'm not sure I could live anywhere that was as densely populated as either of those two places, which counts out India and um, other things like that. Yeah, I think probably the like southern southern Europe, somewhere where the where the temperature was always either warm or hotter, would would probably be the thing. Um, and there'd have to be golf courses nearby
1: <laughs> and vineyards. <laughs> Usually sunny places lend themselves to vineyards and golf courses. Don't they? They do. Don't be they? Okay. they do. Yeah.
2: So yeah, I don't know. I don't mind. I don't mind. Southern Italy, southern Spain, probably Italy.
1: If you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? I wouldn't be so reasonable. More assertive, or how would you mean that? Well, no. I, assertiveness isn't really, is not is not the problem. I kind of
2: most of the time this this trait is a good thing. Um, I I kind of you know you don't sort of jump to take sides or you don't. Know, you're able to see things from from different points of view there are various things that, that go on and that happen whether they just be in within your own family let alone the the wider world where kind of where we're sort of taking more of a, a definitive stance might be might be useful but then i think i picked that up from my old man and there's no changing it
1: what will you be doing in 10 years time um good question that'll be about when I the next album hopefully, comes out won't it hopefully yeah i mean yeah 10, <laughs> ten years is about the time span <laughs> i don't know i
2: mean i'd kind of i'd I'd envisaged being somewhere near retirement or whatever, you know, just after the after my 50s. I can't see that happening. Um, we'll just We've had a little girl; she's just two years old, whatever. So I think I'm going to be working till I'm 80. Uh, <laughs> so in 10 years' time, I don't know. I mean, hope, hopefully, I'll have made more music by then. Um, I'd also like to to um, be involved in in making more making more films or documentaries, whether they be cricket related or not. Um, I had an absolute Ball, um coming up with the the idea and doing the research for the, the uh, England in the nineties doco that I, that I made for Sky a couple of years back, and I'd like to like to do that sort of stuff again. Yeah, and other than that, you know, just making sure that uh, making sure that the family's
1: okay. And the final question we've got to number twenty. If you'd been picking these questions, what would you have asked yourself to get a great and exclusive answer? <laughs> um, <laughs> whereabouts? that um oh I, n- I nearly got something really good there
2: didn't i <laughs> <laughs> that's just a terrible question where did where the hell did you come up with that piece of trickery from yeah i would i would have said i'd, I'd have asked something along the lines of, of what happened between the between the Headingley and trent bridge test matches against south africa in 2003 and you're never going to know
1: you're not going to answer it for me
2: no of course i'm not that would be the question
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a dot, a dot, dot, dot to end the podcast with. Uh, Mark, Putz, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you again. I wish you all the success in the world with your album. Reminder to everybody listening, the album is called Now Playing. It's going to be released across all formats on the 5th of July in the single country. It's going to be released on digital platforms on the 28th of June. Wish you every success with your music. Thank you. Cheers, James.
0: And uh, yeah, good to chat again. It's that Badger style. Thank you very much to Mark Butcher for his time this week on the Cricket Badger podcast. Wish him well with his music, with his cricket, with his documentary making, whatever he chooses to do in the future. Always good to hear from him on the Cricket Badger pod. Loads of stuff going on. Don't forget to tune in to the World Cup Cricket Badger weekly podcast with myself, Ollie, and Akash running the rule over all things World Cup 2019. And until we meet again, Badgers, enjoy your cricket. Hard not to these days.
2: Network.